Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Here we are. If you weren't here last week, I made an announcement about what we would be doing today. And I said we'd be starting really at looking at a great saint from the past. I have wanted to do this for some time. How many of you were with us last week, by the way, listening to Pastor Tom's message? I thought last week was fantastic. If you didn't listen to, uh, if you weren't here, please get the, uh, listen to the podcast online. Excuse me. Um, but what I had said is, I have felt really impressed by God for some time. I've said this, I can't even tell you how countless times about how I would like to start doing a series looking at the lives of great saints from the past. And I don't really know, like, again, I don't really know how this is going to go. I've never done this. In 12 or 13 years of preaching in this place, I've never done something like this. It's totally out of the box. It's totally different. But it's, it's fun for me, and it's living. It's life. You know, one of the spiritual disciplines is really reading biographies. And you know what the, the sad thing is, or the, I should say the dangerous thing is, for us as Christians, is that we can become a people almost marooned on a desert island. How many of you saw the movie Castaway? Remember Tom Hanks, a character, and he's on that island all by himself? Well, that's kind of what can happen to us as Christians when we sit there in our own culture, in our own time period, and we think that we have all the answers. And we look at some of the books that are published and we say, man, these, well, I'd rather read something from today. I'd rather read what this author is saying right now about our culture than read a book from the 1700s or the 1800s. And I'm here to tell you today, we couldn't be any farther from what God really wants from us. And of course, I have to start, even though our, our sermon today is not on C.S. Lewis, how could I not fit him in somehow? I love what C.S. Lewis said on this topic, and I, here's the quote, there's a picture of him. He said, every age has its own outlook. So to see the blind spots of our own time and culture, we need to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. Isn't that awesome? It just has a way with words. Everything you read from this man, really? We need to be a people that are reading things down through the centuries, great saints, things they have left us, deposited for us to enrich our lives. Obviously, the Bible is the number one best-selling book in the world. It's the foundation of our faith. But there are also people that are not in the Bible. You know, if you're questioning this, I would say to you, Hebrews 11 and 12 in the New Testament is a biblical mandate to look at Christian biography. And if you don't know those chapters, don't worry. Hebrews chapter 11 is the whole of faith. And you have all these people that goes over all their stories. And it tells us, but this isn't it. This isn't everyone. This is just a picture. This is just a snapshot. And then the writer of Hebrews starts out in chapter 12 and says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and it talks about us running the race, we have to. It is really mandated that we look at the lives of great saints from the past. Lewis called it, you know what he called it? I love this term, chronological snobbery. When we look at our day and say, this is it, our culture, we have all the answers, we have everything we need, why go into the past, and why look at the lives of other people? And I would say to you, we look at the lives of other people because we learn, first of all, how God used other people in different time periods. Flawed human beings, just like us, not perfect in any way. The man that we're going to look at today, John Newton, 
is flawed beyond belief, but he finds at some point in his life, he finds this God that many of you here, I'm sure, have found, and he learns about his amazing grace. Not grace, amazing grace. And let's start with a little intro to this man and his life. Now, I'm a history teacher. I love this stuff. This is probably up there, top 10 hardest sermons to craft. Do you know why? Because I have so much information. I read way too much. My head is literally going to explode. And on top of having to put all this together, not, to, not that any sermon is easy, but some are easier than others. In trying to put all of this together, I have the little guy here. Parents are away. In-laws are away. Wife is away. Flying solo. Try, I even had to get a babysitter last night to finish my sermon. Don't you feel bad? I want you to feel bad for me. <laughs> trying to... Sympathy. All right. You feel bad. Good, good. That was the goal. Well, here it is. The time is... It is late December, 1772, and this man that we're going to look at today, his name is John Newton. He's in a place called Only England. He's a pastor of a small bucolic town, a country town, 60 miles north of London. And here is this man, Newton. He's sitting in the second floor of this beautiful house that he resides in, and he's trying to come up with a hymn for his New Year's Day service. And here's what's wild about John Newton. You see, every single service, he always crafted a hymn because he understood his congregation and many of the people were uneducated. So he said, you know what? As they return to work and they face all of the hardships and all of the toil, right, that's out there, he said, let me come up with a hymn that will inspire them and stir their souls. So here he is, and he's writing in this house, and he's writing a hymn that you may have heard heard of before called Amazing Grace. That's just the start of the story. This is really more towards the end of his life, but I thought I'd start here instead of when he's younger. So he's there, and he's writing this sermon. How brilliant, how innovative of a man to realize in the 1700s how smart it would be. He said, if people never remember my sermon, in his words, if they never remember my sermon, they'll always remember the hymn that I have created. He actually created a, what was known as the only book of hymns, and there were hundreds of hymns that he and another guy by the name of William Cooper, who I wish I had time, you know, it's certain characters that are part of his story that are tethered to Newton's story. I don't have a lot of time to get into them, but I'll mention them and maybe say a couple of pieces about them. And I hope really, I mean, maybe this is crazy, but I really hope that you would possibly be inspired enough to pick up a biography of either this man or somebody else. If you say, hey, James, can you recommend somebody that you think I might like? Oh, gosh, there are so many. I have a list, and I'm going over my list of people that I would like to look at in the future. So there he is, and and here's the inspiration. It's not even called Amazing Grace, or I should say, say this first. I pulled this out. This is a quote from him in writing the hymns. He said, I usually make a hymn weekly and sometimes it costs me so much thought and study that I hardly do anything else. I thought that was a pretty neat uh, quote from his diaries. And I love what these guys too, you know, 1700s, 1800s, so many of them, we have their diary entries. We can read their thoughts. I know for some, in our culture today, many of it were like, I'm not writing, I don't keep a diary, I'm a guy, I'm a man. I don't write a diary, I don't write in a diary. But I would say how important it is for us to look back over the years and time and see how God has intervened and moved in our lives. 
And then who knows, maybe one day, the guy had no intention, never thought that over 200 years later, there'd be a church in Middle Island and people would be talking about his life. I think that's the farthest thing from this guy's mind. Right? And here he is, here's a picture. The picture on the left, as you see, that's a, uh, a picture, a rendering of, of his home and only, you can't see the picture on the right, that's only England today. And that's the church, it obviously went through several renovations. This is the text. You hear the song Amazing Grace. You've heard it a million times in your life. I even went on Amazon. This is wild. There were 3,852 versions of Amazing Grace on Amazon. Did you hear what I said? Over 3,000. Here is the text. This man is sitting in the second floor of this house, waiting to get inspired by God, and he sits there, and this is the text where the greatest hymn ever created is from. It is King David. It is 1 Chronicles 17, 16 through 17. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have regarded me according to the rank of a man of high degree, O Lord God. I underline that part in 16 because he's saying, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? This is King David looking back on his life. He's panning out. He's looking back and all the events, everything that has transpired. And he's saying, are you kidding me? What God, how you have been there, how you've held me in the palm of your hand. David has had some grievous sins, some amazing falls, tragedies that he's endured, but he stands there as a king and he's saying, this is unbelievable, unmerited grace. And this man, John Newton, could so relate to this because of his past that he brings it out to the people. And this is what he said to his congregation. Where were you? When you first experienced the grace of God, where were you? Not just grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And he's crying, tears are streaming down his face as he's preaching this message to his people. And he wants them to get in touch with him. And I ask you, as a preacher in the 21st century, where were you when God, you first met God in your life? Where were you when you were so far away and you were a wretch? Do you think upon that moment? Or is it just Christianity and you know what? It's the same old thing and you come in and we do the same old thing and I come to church. Do you ever really sit there and reflect on how God has taken you a wretch and how he's moved on your life and showed you that unmerited, you know, unearned grace? Grace? How about it, saints? That's what John Newton did on that New Year's Day as he preached to his people. Here's something cool. Did you know the original title of that hymn is not Amazing Grace? It was called, his title, Faith's Review and Expectation. And here's a little tidbit, too. I love this stuff. The, the melody, you know the melody that we sang today? I said, I told the music team, I said, I want you to sing it even before I preach, and then we'll see at the end. I have a little surprise for you at the end. The melody that we sing today, that was not the melody that was sung over 200 years ago. It was actually changed in the 1800s by a man named William Walker, who was a hymn writer in the South. 
This hymn was not a hymn like right away. It was like, oh my gosh, everyone left and like, did you, did you hear that hymn in church that Newton wrote? Greatest hymn I've ever heard. And it goes around the world. No, that's not how it happened. 50 years after he writes this hymn, it's dead. Nobody in England, nobody in the civilized world is actually singing it. Crazy. This guy, Walker from the South, takes the hymn, changes the melody, and the rest is history. I'll get to that at the end, but isn't that wild? How God used this man, a depraved man, for much of his early life, and he uses him to write the most amazing hymn the world has ever seen. How about his childhood? Another picture of him there. Here's the quote from dealing with his mom. I'll say it first. Might as well say it first. He, um, his father was a seafaring man. He was the captain of a merchant ship. He was out for it. I don't know how many of you like, know the industry that well. The only you know, uh, understanding I have of it is watching those TV shows like The uh, Deadliest Catch. Bering Sea Gold. I love that TV show, right? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, all right. That kind of stuff. So this guy's out for months and years on end. Did you hear what I said? Sometimes his father was out for years on end. He never knew when he was coming, never knew when he was going. Gone in a flash. His mom is a Christian woman. She has raised this boy from the time he's young. She has raised him in the faith. And wants him, this is her prayer. You read this everywhere. Every biography I read, everything I, I could get my hands on, she prayed from the time that he was born that he'd be a man that would enter the ministry. Are you really? Are you kidding me? Parents, what are you praying for your kids? How big are your prayers for your kids? When he was four years old, Jameson's not in here, so I can say this, I don't want to hurt his feelings. When, the, when John Newton was four years old, he could read any common book. Any common book. I'm sitting there last night. I'm reading Thomas, and I'm reading Dr. Seuss. I don't want to read Thomas, and I don't want to read Dr. Seuss. So now Newton has inspired me. Jameson, his homework for this year is he will read Lord of the Rings. He will read the whole trilogy, and then when he's done, he's going to read The Hobbit. And we're going to watch every single movie together, and then he's going to read them again. No, parents, don't be, really. Don't, like I, I, you know, you read that, and you're like, really? Four years old? At six years old, hey, John, you know what we're going to do today? We're going to start to learn Latin. How's that sound? Sure, Mom. That's, the, that's exactly what I wanted to do at six years old. Tragedy hits, though. You see, at six years old, his mom would pass away. His father, catch this, his father is out at sea. His mom dies. For nine months, he's living with somebody down the street, a neighbor that he doesn't even know that well. There are no other relatives around. And here is this young boy at six years old. His mom was his world. Didn't know his dad that well. But his life has been crushed. It's broken. It's in pieces. Newton's dad comes back, right? Nine months later. Shows up on the scene. He's not even there. They're telling him that his wife had passed away. Oh, wow, what a different world. No technology like we have today, cell phones, Facebook, nobody tweeted this. Guy finds out when he shows up on the scene there. Immediately, he gets married to somebody else. He meets somebody else and gets married. Wow, totally different world. He meets this woman. Now, this woman that comes in, John's stepmom, is not a Christian. I mean, she's not mommy dearest, like crazy, like, you know, but she is not a Christian by any means. 
And she does not have, doesn't want him to have anything to do with Christianity. And for that matter, she doesn't really want to have anything to do with him. It's not her kid. Newton's dad was a respected man in the community. You know why he was a respected man? Because he was a disciplinarian. He was very strict. Parents, I, I don't know if I could do this to my kid, but they would have to, he, his son would have to stand at attention right before he'd sit down for dinner. Yes, sir. Then he was allowed to eat when his dad told him. He was not allowed to speak until he was told he could speak. The father trying to instill incredible discipline in this boy's life. And we, would, we look at that and think that's a little strange. His father really didn't want to have much to do with him either when he comes back on the scene. You see, he and John's stepmom, they would actually have their own kids. And they would spend all of their time with those kids. And they kind of pushed this young boy, John Newton, to the side. John Newton, this is another amazing thing. How about this? He would only have two years of, of educational training in his life. Two years. He would go to a boarding school from the ages of 8 to 10 years old. That's it. Two years of your life. That's all that he had. His dad sent him there for those two years. No theological training. Did you, by the way, did you read the lyrics to that hymn, Amazing Grace? The guy had no theological training. Although he was friends with, get this, get this, I'm getting ahead of myself, but this will be hard today. I can't, it's hard to stick to notes. He was friends with George Whitfield. Yeah, one of the fathers of the first great awakening. And he's also friends with John Wesley. Really? Kidding me? These are people that he would hang out with. These were his bros. Pretty incredible. So here he is as a young boy, 8 to 10 years old. He's sent to a boarding school. At the age of 11, you know what his dad says? Hey, John. It's time that you come out with me and you're going to go on the ship. 11 years old. Who's, how old's 11? What grade are you in 11 years old? All right, you're in sixth grade. Imagine being a sixth grade boy and you're being sent out on a ship on the rough seas and this is going to be your life. This is the plight of one John Newton. And his dad takes him out and he says, all right, son, I'm going to teach you everything that I know. And here's, an, here's a, a, a picture. I, I just wanted to say this too. I'd be remiss if I didn't. As fathers, this is what he wrote about his dad. I am persuaded that he loved me, but he seemed not willing that I should know him. I was with him in a state of fear and bondage and his sternness broke my spirit. Wow. And I, I said, I have to stop and I have to say something to all of us as fathers. Look what it says in Ephesians. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Fathers, how it's not Father's Day, but it's always Father's Day. How are we doing in that endeavor? Are we spending time with our kids? Or are we too busy at the office? Are we too busy with a million other things going on in our lives that we don't have time for our own children? but real. So Newton's on this, he's on his father's ship. He will board his father's ship for, uh, for some years, for a couple of years. He will make a couple of voyages with them, um, six voyages. That's what we think he, how many voyages he took. By this, the time he is 17 years old, his father is ready to retire. He's older. Here's a picture here, and um, let's read this quote. The Lord had now, to all appearances, given me up. This is, this is the state. I should say this preface it. This is the state of John as he is on the, his father's ship and other ships. He is the most debauched sailor that you could ever come in contact with. 
I read this in numerous biographies. How about this? He could swear, it was said, he could swear for two hours straight. Two hours straight! And if he met anybody that was a Christian as a young man between the ages of 17 and, say, 22 years old, he would denigrate them. He would disparage them. You're reading the Bible? What's wrong with you? He'd love to get in discussions. He'd love to curse people out. He would say crude things. This is from other sailors on ships. When other sailors, seamen, think that you are out there, that's saying a lot. This is John Newton. That's who this man was. And so he serves on his dad's ship, and he'll serve there for some time. He's totally crude. He'd make up even disrespectful songs about other people, about Christianity. Amazing how God uses people that you would never, ever expect. You know what he called himself? One of the books I read, I love this, The Great Blasphemer. That's what he called himself. Hey, I'm John Newton, a.k.a. The Great Blasphemer. I can curse with the best of them. I can drink with the best of them. That's who this guy was. Reminded me a little bit. Like, you ever see the Jaws movie? If you haven't, I don't know where you've been. Jaws. Remember the captain? His, guy, his name is Quinn. Even though he doesn't curse in the movie, he kind of reminded me of that guy. And Remember that lie in the movie? He's like, I'll catch him for five and I'll kill him for ten. Right? <laughs> remember that guy in the movie? I don't know. The whole time I'm like crafting the sermon, I'm like, he reminds me of that guy. Even though in the movie he's not really cursing, but he reminds me of that like, just rough, tough dude. You put him on that boat, and it's like, I don't want to be anywhere near this guy. Grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like John Newton. No, 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 that saved a wretch like me. How about you? Well, he was impressed into the Navy a couple of years later. You see, France and England going back and forth, battles for seemingly perpetuity. They've been going back and forth and battling. And uh, Britain needed seamen. They needed people in the Navy. He was impressed into the Navy. So he's on a ship there. And on this ship, he just happens to meet other people. Some people say that were even worse than him. The company that he had, these, I mean, these people, it didn't matter what it was. They were as debauched as you can imagine. And they did unspeakable things. That's what I'm reading in books. Unspeakable things would take place on these boats when he was there. John Newton, hard to believe. And he eventually gets involved in the slave trade. Ooh. Keep this in the back of your mind. This is where at times it's just going to, it's unbelievable. He would actually be on these, these ships. And as a, as a history teacher, we have to teach this. The horrors of the institution of slavery in looking for human cargo, these slave ships would scour the coast of Africa looking to and fro, and they'd get, it was very dangerous work. If you wanted to work on a slave ship, and you got off that ship, and you were trying to find people, it wasn't like people were going to acquiesce, say, yeah, sure, hey, yeah, I want to be, a, I want to go into slavery. Of course not. It was a dangerous job. And here is Newton and many other people, it was very lucrative. They made large sums of money being in this business. And Newton said, yeah, sure, and understand this too. I know in our day, in the 21st century, we hear slavery, the institution of such, and you hear about a guy like this who was involved with it before God really moves on his life. This was the culture. This was pervasive. This is what everybody did. So to look at it today and go, how could somebody have been involved in that? That's what the culture was like. There were, very, there were people, but very few people that would rise up and were saying, going against the grain, against the current, and talking about how evil slavery was, the atrocities. There were abolitionists, but not that many, and I, th- I think it's important for you to know. 
And then here we go. March, uh, March 21st, 1748, age 22 years old, John Newton has what he would call the great turning day. Come with me aboard his ship. He is on a slave ship. He is sleeping below deck. He is in his bed, and he hears loud noise. He hears waves blasting the ship, bombarding the ship, wave after wave. He's woken up out of this deep sleep. He gets up out of the bed. He looks around. He sees that water has entered the ship. He hears a commotion up top. He goes to run up top. The captain puts him to work right away. This is a major storm. This is like a Category 5 hurricane that is coming in here. And here he is. He comes up top, and the captain puts him in a position. And the captain then says, oh, wait, you know what? Newton, go downstairs. I need you to go grab a knife. Newton is not gone for more than five seconds, friends, five seconds before the man that took his place on that ship is swept into the sea where he is supposed to be, and that should have been his life. Newton comes back up, and he's there from 3 three o'clock in the morning to 12 midnight the next day, all of these men on that ship don't know if they're going to live or die. There he is in the bottom of the boat for much of that time in the beginning, and he is taking water out, taking water out, pumps. He's working the pumps, trying to keep the water out, stay afloat. They're taking clothes. They're taking beddings, trying to stop the water from coming onto the boat. It's life and death. Here is a man, a debauched sailor, who has wanted nothing to do with God for his entire life. take over the wheel of that ship. And he's in the middle of that storm. And as he writes in his diary, he says, you know what, at that moment, I didn't even care about anything else. For the first time in my life, I cried out to God. I cried out. He said it was like a shrieking raven crying in the night. Lord, help me. Lord, see me. Lord, I see my wicked ways. He didn't care that there was anybody else on that ship. All he cared about was finding this God. And look at this quote. Look at this quote. This is what later on in his life, I love this, later on in this man's life, he would celebrate this day every single March 22nd. What is it? 21st? I'm sorry. 21st. He would celebrate on this day, 57 years later, 1805, he writes, when Newton was 80 years old, he writes in his diary, not well able to write but I endeavored to observe the return of this day with humiliation, prayer, and praise. He had marked the day as sacred and precious for over half a century. He said of that day, on that day, the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. Wow. The man didn't know if he was going to live or die. How about this? This is crazy. I wasn't going to share this, but I have to. So the ship eventually makes its way and they dock in Ireland four weeks later. The ship docks. The very next day, the very next day, there is a major storm that hits every single boat that was out at sea. Every person was killed. If John Newton was out at sea, he would have lost his life. I don't have time because it's one sermon. I could give you over 10 examples of how he he could have lost his life. And God was like, nope, I have plans for you. Nah, you're not going to be on the ship where other people are going to lose their lives. No, I'm going to save your life. Nope, oh, this is going to happen. I'm going to put you here in this position. Oh, you don't have a job? I'm going to give you this job. Oh, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of your wife. Don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of this. Because there is a God that is on the throne, and he sees, and he hears, and he knows. 
this is what he, when he, when he reads the Bible, I, I, I didn't say this, he, he gets the Bible. As soon as the storm subsides and the winds decrease and the rains are gone, right? He looks in the Bible and the first thing he opens, that's all he could do. He's obsessed. Where do I find a Bible on the ship? A man that really hasn't looked at a Bible since he was a little kid. And he remembers thinking back to his mom and he looks, and the first passage he sees is Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your, heaven, your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's the first thing he looks at. And he says, oh my gosh, I want this Holy Spirit. I want this Holy Spirit to invade my life. Understand something as I'm giving you this history lesson. Understand that this was not an overnight thing. John Newton does not become a pastor and the person that writes the greatest hymn in the history of, of Christendom right then and there. No, this is a progression. And how many of you know you became a Christian and it's not an overnight thing? It being made into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ is not an overnight sensation. It takes time. And we need to understand as Christians, we're constantly under construction. God is constantly working on us. He's constantly moving on our lives. Well, that's an, indeed what happens with this man, John Newton. Well, after this, he stays out for some more trips. And, I mean, and this is, this is hard to imagine too. I told you what happens to his ship. He eventually gets his own slave ship. He has a crew of 30 people. He, along with others, they will pack 100 to, he has a smaller ship, but he'll pack 100 to 200 slaves underneath that ship. He prided himself on the fact, and remember, he's, a Christ, he's becoming a Christian at this point. He realizes it's the start of a conversion, right? He's knocked off his high horse. Something is happening. He says he knows in his heart that God is doing something. He knows God has saved him for a reason. And here he is with these slaves, and he prided himself on the fact that none of his slaves, in his second and third journeys out, in scouring the coast of Africa, none of them had died. One out of every five sailors would die in an attempt to try to capture slaves off the coast of Africa, one out of every four slaves would die on their journey. And this is, again, hard for us to really understand. And since we live centuries later, pretty, pretty difficult. Well, I love what it says here in Second Peter. This is something else that he stood on, a verse that he stood on for his life. Second Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The guy, here's the man that was so debauched, I told you before, that he would he curse two hours straight. He could do, I mean, he, his conversation, he was very disrespectful. He went from that to see the progression. He's eventually holding Bible studies on his ship. He becomes a slave captain of a ship called the Argyle. He's holding Bible studies. He's holding worship services. He's praying for people. God is working in this man's life for something to happen. Friends, I don't know where you're at. Please understand this. He can take any one of us, any of you in this room, and use you beyond your wildest dreams and imaginations. And let me tell you, that's why I'm crazy enough to think that. I wake up and I see my life and I know what a wretch I am. And I say, you know what, Lord? I know you can use me because you've used other people throughout the centuries. Why can't we all think that way? You need to think that way and realize that God can indeed use you and your life. He'll eventually leave the slave trade. And I know for time's sake, I, 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 some of you are probably, I'm going to lose some of you, but for time's sake... He leaves the slave trade because he has an epileptic seizure. 
And he actually, he's so successful on his small boat, the Argyle, that another, another captain wants to give him a bigger ship. Well, this is another, I mean, he's supposed to get the ship. He has an epileptic seizure. The, captain, the man that he chooses, because John Newton has the seizure and can't go out, that man and all his crew will die on the ship that he lets out. I mean, it's like time, it's like time after time after time after time, God saves this man's life. And here he is. He says, I can't go back into the slave trade. I'm done. He's starting to realize the evils of it. And so in the beginning, he didn't. But as time goes on, he does. But he has no job now. He's not a, he's not a slave captain anymore. He's not on a ship. And ju- it just so happens that he gets a job as a surveyor. What would that be? A, a, a tide surveyor. He would actually have to inspect ships that would come into the city of Liverpool. And he would inspect them. He did this for nine years. Nine years. And during these nine years in this job, he was, I told you he was friends with, with Whitfield and, and, uh, and Wesley and many others that you wouldn't know, but amazing names. And he's friends with these people, and he starts to feel a calling on his life. He starts to write sermons. He's not a pastor. Not yet. The word gets out about his story, about how God is, is moving on his life. Some of the people catch wind of this. And some influential people want to ordain him. Here's a, a man again, no theological training, did not go to seminary, did not take one class. But here's a man that other people even see that God is using, God is moving on his life. And he realizes he has a calling and he wants to get in. And that's where the first pastorate, he'll take two in his life. And the first one will be in that place, only England, that I showed you before, where he actually writes Amazing Grace. And he feels that call there. And then... This is my favorite part of the story. I know you probably thought, and you're hearing me, you're probably like, well, I guess the crescendo is, is him writing that hymn, Amazing Grace. It's really not. And let me show you a picture. It may be a little small for you to see. The man on the left, I debated whether or not to do my first uh, sermon on William Wilberforce, the man that is mainly responsible for the abolition of the slave trade, not slavery itself in England, but the slave trade in 1808. And why this is so fascinating, William Wilberforce is a very influential politician in England. How many of you saw the movie Amazing Grace from 2007? All right, pretty good. There's a scene, I can't, a lot of it's, usually with movies, a lot of it's historically inaccurate. And there was a scene I wish they made more moving between Newton and and Wilberforce. And let me tell you the story there. Well, I'll I'll read you. There's a meeting that's going to take place. That guy up there, Eric Metaxas, is a... uh, He's an author now, and he wrote a piece on Wilberforce, and I love that quote in there. You see, there's going to be a meeting. Wilberforce, try to follow this. I know I'm giving you a lot of history. Wilberforce is in Parliament. He's a parliamentarian. He's in the House of Commons. They have the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Like, we have our Congress, the House and the Senate. And there he is, this man. He is debating. He feels an urge. He becomes a Christian later on in life at the age of 26 years old, and he feels an urge that he is supposed to be the one to fight the slave trade. But he doesn't know, his good friend is the prime minister, his name is William Pitt. And he doesn't know, he's like, where do I take this, what should I do? Because this may be a losing battle, Not a, there aren't any people that are really going to be with me. He remembers Wilberforce when he was a kid, follow this. When he was a kid, there was a time when he had to go stay with his aunt and uncle. There was a tragedy in his own family. Again, I don't have time to go into it all. There's a tragedy in his own family. And he winds up staying with his aunt and uncle, who just happened to be good friends with John Newton. When he's older, Newton is, he moves on from only to a church in London. 
He's preaching at the church, and Wilberforce happens to hear him speak, remembers back to when he was a young boy, and he knows the story of John Newton's life, and God puts it on his heart. He says, you're going to go and meet up with John Newton, and you're going to have a talk with him. And that's where Metaxas said, I get goosebumps even thinking about this. In the history of the world, more hung on that private meeting of December 7, 1785, than we will ever know. This is what Newton says to him. He comes to him, and this is what, I, I gotta tell you this, I wasn't gonna tell you, but this is funny. So Wilberforce, he goes to see Newton, right, in a place called Charles Square where Newton lived, and he had called upon Newton privately. This has to be a clandestine meeting. No one can know about this, you see, because he's in Parliament. And for him, first of all, that he's a Christian, he becomes a Christian, which is something that wasn't popular then in England at this time, okay, at this time. So he says, what am I going to do? He starts going out to meet Newton. He walks around three times around this place, Charles Square, trying to get up the nerve to actually go and knock on the door and meet with them. Does it once, does it twice, does it the third time, goes up to the door, knocks on the door, and he sits down with Newton. And this is what one of the things Newton says there. It is hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up for the good of his church and for the good of the nation. He has called you, he quotes from Esther, he has called you for such a time as this. You are to be the one, William. You are to lead the charge against the slave trade. You are to be the one that leads the charge against the institution of slavery. Are you kidding me? In the history of this world, what that meeting was like, that's something I want to look at one day. And let me tell you, I don't know if you're not interested in any of this, you're going to get to heaven one day. I want you to know when you see some of these great saints and you see them, I want you to know something about their story and what they did for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they talk. It's just fascinating. So they're sitting there, and they talk, and Newton says to him, it's, what, it's what's called as the Eusebian temptation, and what that means is, Wilberforce has in his mind, he says, well, why wouldn't I go work in the sacred world? Why don't I just leave the secular, secular world? That's what the temptation was. Let me leave Parliament, because I'll be able to do more good. If it's not for Newton, who tells him at this point, he says, listen, William, you are to stay in parliament. You'll be able to do more good as a parliamentarian than you will if you go into ministry and become a preacher. And I like saying that today too because I'm a minister and I'm a teacher. I do. I love it. Suzanne's not here. I'd love for like to tell story. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable, Mr. and Mrs. Campbell. What's going on? I spoke to kids. You can't make this up how God moves. I spoke to kids, I speak to Rob's football team once a year, once a year, right? I spoke to those kids on Thursday night. I'm getting text messages from parents, I'm getting kids coming up to me, talking to me, and all I prayed the whole way, I said, I don't want it to be anything about me, it's not about me, I wanted those kids to see something else. I wanted them to see a Jesus that lives inside of me. She's at a football game and parents are asking her where our church is. It's nothing to do with me. Again, nothing to, this is what I do for a living. I can speak, I can motivate people. It's nothing to do with me though. It's who Jesus made me to be. I don't know where you are. You may say, I'm not a preacher like you. Yeah, you may not be, but listen, you have a mission field as we talked about weeks ago. You are leaving this place and going to a mission field. I don't care if you're in a cubicle. I don't care if you're in a supermarket. I don't care if you're in a post office. That is your mission field. And you want to spread the gospel and you want to be a light, salt and light. Amen, saints? You don't need to clap. I just want you to, I I just want to make sure you're there.
Can you give me five more minutes? Please, five more minutes. Yes, yes. You had no choice. <clears throat> Newton will write what is known as Thoughts on the African Slave Trade. And you can see a picture of, there, of that right there. Where later on, Wilberforce would use this in trying to eradicate the slave trade, right? He will use this book that Newton has wrote and the atrocities and the things that he listened there. I literally cried at times reading it. Some of the things, his, he's reca- re- recounting what has happened on some of these sla- slave ships, some of the things that he's seen. A commerce so iniquitous, so cruel, so oppressive, so destructive as the African slave trade. That's what he would write. That's what he ends the book with. That's how he ends it. And then listen to this. This is the message that Newton would preach in London to people, wealthy, affluent people. This is how they made their livelihood. They made money off the slave trade. This is what he preached from. Look at this guy, how crazy he was. I love it. Also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but plainly in all these things. Yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead my case against you because you say I have not sinned. This is what he preached to people and said, you are sinners. Allowing the slave trade and the institution of slavery to go on, the day should be over. Oh, the courage and the strength, the fortitude, the perseverance of one John Newton. Later on, well past his retirement age, he had an assistant that would sit with him in the pulpit, kind of like I'll have when I'm older one day. And he couldn't even, he he couldn't even see. He was like basically blind, right? Blind. The person up here, the helper would have to tell him things. And he's up there one time and I had to, you know, he's nearly blind. He's up there once and he's repeating the phrase, Jesus Christ is precious. And with that, the guy next to him, the the helper is like, "Um, Pastor Newton, you said that twice. And he looks at the man and he says, I know I said it twice and I'm going to say it again because it's true. Jesus Christ is precious. Right before he's going to die, he'll actually see, this is wild, he will actually see before he dies, nine months before he dies, he will see the abolition of the slave trade, right? This is what he says on his deathbed to one of his good friends. (laughs) My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things. He's blind. He says that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. You've probably heard that before. That's, that's where it's from. It's John Newton, a man that saw where he started, saw the grace of God move in his life in amazing ways. And you want, can I give you his epitaph? Can I show you his tombstone? This is what is written on the man's tombstone. I won't read the whole thing to you, but just this is what he wanted on his tombstone. John Newton talks about being a servant of slaves in Africa. He says, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. I love people that can be honest with themselves as Christians. I love Christians that don't say, you know what? They, they forget where they came from. And they say, look at me today. No, no. I get it in a sense you want to forget who you were, but you're never to forget what God has done in your life. Never, ever forget that. And I want to close with, this is a Scottish, this is the bagpipes, a version of Amazing Grace. And I want you to think, put it in history. This song has been played at Olympic ceremonies. This song has been played at presidential inaugurations. 
This song was played during the institution of slavery in the South. This song was played when the freedom marches and the civil rights movement in the 1960s were marching. This song was played before Dr. Martin Luther King gets up and gives, I have a dream speech. It is sang. This song is played over and over and over again before the Berlin Wall even falls down. They play this, or after they play this song. This song is played when Nelson Mandela is released from prison. This song is played at 9-11. This song is played over and over and over again. And the music still goes on. How about you? Where were you when I started in First Chronicles? Where were you when you experienced God's grace? I pray, Lord, I pray right now that this so amazing grace will have new meaning for your church here, for your people. Lord, I pray that the message will go forth. Lord, I pray for all these saints from the past and how they've inspired us, Lord, and how you've lit me on fire with a word from John Newton's life. Lord, may we be people that want to search and get into other lives, other great saints. May we not be content with our lives today. What is that thing? What is, it's our day. What are we supposed to do with our lives? Speak to us. Talk to us, Father. There came a time, friends, we come to the table now. Hey, don't be religious. This is church. I don't care. I wanted to play this. Let this music move on you. I ask that we play this song again. As you come up, music team, why don't you come up and prepare, please? 2,000 years ago, the ultimate depiction, representation of amazing grace, what Jesus did on that cross. Oh, yes, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I don't know if you're somebody that has never heard the gospel. I don't know. I don't know every face in here, but if you never have, I'm telling you there's hope. There's hope for you in your life because there was hope for a John Newton, for a man that seems so far from God, but he found that amazing grace. I ask you when you come up and take the table, you take the elements, I ask that you would search your heart. I ask that you would think back over this time where God showed you. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.